Okay. Before we begin, I have a crisp $20 bill. If anyone can tell me what the message of my last Acts sermon was. <laughs> now, before you say, that's not nice to make us feel bad for not remembering, let me tell you that I had to go into my notes. I read the passage because I didn't even remember what the passage was. Read it, still had no idea what I had preached on. Had to go in my notes and, oh yeah, that's what. So, $20 bill, if anyone can remember what the last passage, you can look in the passage of Acts and see if it cues you at all. Oh, what a great idea, Barry. No, no. He was going to Jerusalem, and what did we learn? Unity, good guess. I always preach on that, but no, not unity. Yeah, it's tough. It's been a long time. You know what? I'm going to put this in here in your honor. It was Acts 21, 17 to 26 was the passage. And in that passage, okay, I'm going to give the abridged version of the last about chapter of Acts, at least the points that are important for our understanding of our passage today, because it's been a month since we were in Acts. And if people are following on the podcast, two months, because the one I preached a month ago, the recording didn't work. So, <laughs> so that's why, that's why no, that's why nobody knows. Yeah, that's why. But here's, here's what's been happening of late. So Paul has been in Asia Minor, this province of Rome, which is what we call Turkey today. And he's been super effective in his ministry there. Everyone in the whole area knows the name of Jesus. And so he's been super effective. But Paul was determined to get to Rome. And so all the rest of the book of Acts is about Paul getting to Rome. But first, he has a pit stop in Jerusalem. It's very important that he gets to Jerusalem before Passover. And so that's what he does. But he doesn't go by himself. He has collected over several years this offering, which isn't in Acts, but it is in Paul's letters, this big offering. And his intent from collecting this offering from all the churches in Greece, Macedonia, Asia Minor, is to bring it to the church in Jerusalem where they're undergoing financial hardship. And it's more than that, it's the show of brotherhood between the Gentile churches in Asia Minor and the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Because Jewish people don't always like Gentile people. And so Paul collects this big offering and he's going to take it to Jerusalem. And with him, he takes leaders from a bunch of different churches in the area, including a guy named Trophimus. He will come up later. These leaders weren't merely serving as Brinks trucks, sort of backing up Paul, making sure the offering's okay. They represented the fruit of Paul's labor to Jerusalem. These are the leaders he has started following Jesus in these Gentile places, and some of them are Gentiles. And so Paul brings them to Jerusalem so they can celebrate together the goodness of God expanding his kingdom beyond the temple and out into the Gentile world. These Christian brothers from Gentile lands represent the single most significant piece of expansion in the family of God since at least Joseph being in Egypt, and maybe even since the call of Abraham. This welcoming Gentiles in the church is the biggest addition to the family in thousands of years. However, and this is the $20 answer to the question that I asked, as Paul brings them, these these, um, church leaders, to the church in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem leaders, the elders, miss the point. They missed the point completely. They gave token acknowledgement of praise to God for what Paul had been doing, what the Holy Spirit had been doing through Paul with these Gentile outsiders. But they immediately turn, they basically say, hey, that's great, Paul, but listen, we got problems here. And here's the problems. The problem is that they are afraid of persecution on them as Jerusalem Jewish Christians and on Paul because Paul is working with Gentiles. 
And so they say, okay, we got a plan. There's these young men who are undergoing this purification ritual thing in the temple. So you're going to go with them. You're going to pay their, their dues. Everyone, it'll show everyone how, what a great Jew you are and how you respect the law. Even though Paul makes it pretty clear in all of his letters, he doesn't respect the law anymore. Doesn't care about the law of Moses. All he cares about is winning people for Jesus Christ. And so the way he can win people for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem is by following the law. So he does that. Um, so how does that mean they missed the point? Well, they took their eyes off their devotion to living and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the only true way to salvation, not the law, Jesus alone. They took their eyes off that to indulge in some traditional conservative views on the law of Moses. They're not overcome by joy for salvation of these entire people groups who hadn't been exposed to salvation at all. They're not overcome with joy for that. They're overcome with fear for what the presence of Paul could mean to them. So they missed the point. Paul has demonstrated in every city that he stepped foot in for the past couple decades how love for God and love for others conquers fear and suffering. Everywhere he'd go, he'd get beaten, thrown in jail, whipped, whatever. But he was unafraid, and he was unashamed of the scorn of others. All the Jewish people in all the cities he'd go to hated him, made fun of him, mocked him, ran him out of town. He was not afraid of that. He knew that there was a higher calling. He was willing to endure the worst punishment if it meant displaying service, sacrifice, and submission to his Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. The Jerusalem elders, on the other hand, demand Paul compromise his values and work against the direction of the Holy Spirit by affirming the necessity and authority of the temple, the very place where the book of Acts is determined to move further and further away from as the center of God's presence on earth. It's not the temple anymore. These Jewish leaders, they want to bring Paul back to the temple But Paul, his whole thing is, no, we're moving away from that. That's old news. The elders are afraid that things will get messy. So they attempt to proactively smooth the situation over with capitulation to old-timey values. The ultimate old-timey value if you are a Jewish person. And that is the temple as God's sacred presence on earth. They hope that this will allow them to save face among their Jewish neighbors while also saving Paul, as I mentioned, a few pints of blood. As we'll see, however, that doesn't happen, like at all. Paul will be attacked, and blood will be shed, further underlining just how much these Jerusalem elders missed the point. They're worried to keep the peace, everything's okay, but that keeping the peace was watering down their ministry to these Jewish people. They thought they could save Paul some some pain, save themselves some pain. Doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. But it's not just those Christian leaders in Jerusalem who missed the point. It would appear that the entire city has missed the point of Paul's passion and purpose. So, now you're all caught up. $20 in the offering plate. Nobody got it. And we can see what we can learn from Paul's experience of persecution in Jerusalem. He will face off against the violence and oppression of obsessive traditionalism. He will be left bloodied and battered at the hands of ultra-conservative religious views. And he will have an opportunity to demonstrate to an entire city how shockingly progressive our God is as he calls his people to look beyond mere tradition towards transformation. I realize I'm using words that may be bothersome. Words like conservatism, progressive. Those have become political words that for many on either side of the spectrum are dirty words. I want us to get that out of our heads for today. I don't want, when I think conservative, I don't want us to think of the Conservative Party of Canada. I want us to think of something else. When I say progressive, I'm not saying liberal theology, 
There's good and there's bad all across the spectrum. I want us to get that out of our heads. Don't hear me telling you how to vote, please. Hear a lesson from Acts on the dangers of being obsessed with tradition. Okay? So this is not it's not a political statement. This is a heart thing. This is to do with our hearts as believers in Jesus. Okay? Can we just, I just want to, okay. All right, let's read the first part of our, our, our passage today, Acts 21, verses 27 to 36. When the seven days were nearly over, and that's the seven days of Paul undergoing this purification ritual with these young men to show he's a good Jew, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! Away with him! So, Despite the little dog and pony show they make Paul go through with the purification ritual, guess what? Chaos still ensues. The problem is one of false perception. Paul had been spotted by some Jews from Asia Minor who knew Paul from that area where he had been very successful. When I say successful, I mean lots of Gentiles came to believe in Jesus, but he wasn't successful among the Jewish people there. They still hated him. And so the Jews in Jerusalem, who were from Asia Minor, had seen Paul hanging out with Trophimus, one of the other church leaders that I mentioned he had brought with him from Asia Minor. And when these men saw Paul at the temple, they rallied the crowd up against Paul, suggesting that he had allowed Trophimus, a Gentile, into the courts, courts of the Holy Temple. Now, we may be thinking, so what? Big deal. Can't an interested Greek dude from far away check out the temple on a busy Jerusalem afternoon? What's the big deal with that? Why? It's just sightseeing. Why can't he be in the temple? Well, sure. Sure, a a curious Gentile could wander past the outer courtyard and beyond the wall into the holy temple, but they would do so under pain of immediate execution. Keeping filthy Gentiles out of the temple was of such traditional importance to the Jews of Jerusalem that signs were posted all around the outer wall. We have excavated these signs archaeologically. We know that these were up on the temple, and they said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. If you were a Gentile, you were not allowed anywhere near the inner courts of the temple. If you did, you were executed on the spot. They were deathly serious about this. They were like those crazy farmers with razor wire around their property. Signs posted, trespassers will be shot on sight, pacing the front porch with a shotgun. The only difference is, in the case of the Jerusalem temple, unlike the crazy farmer, they have the law on their side. Farmers who do that say they don't have the law on their side. Then, they did. 
the Romans, now the Romans, if we know one thing about the Romans is that they loved killing people, right? That was their favorite thing to do. Conquer someone, kill anyone who stood up against them. They loved to kill. If you were a conquered people who killed someone for your own reasons, they would kill you for depriving them of the right of killing someone. So if you were a conquered people like the Jews, you could not take capital punishment into your own hands. Only the Romans were allowed to do that. Except, except for this one instance, the Romans ceded the right to capital punishment to the Jews to keep them happy for this one reason. If anyone blasphemed the temple, like, for instance, a Gentile like Trophimus entering the sacred ground or a Jew like Paul escorting him into the temple, if you did that, well, the Romans gave the Jews the right to kill them on the spot. No, as far as I can tell, no other conquered people had the right to capital punishment except the Jews in regards to the temple. That's how seriously the Jews took this. So seriously that the Romans were like, whoa, we got to keep these people happy somehow. Let them just kill whoever they want when it comes to the temple. That's how serious this whole issue is. Even the Romans gave up their bloodlust to allow Jewish people to enforce this traditional regulation regarding the sanctity of the temple being protected from unclean and unworthy Gentiles. Do you remember these words, though? Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God himself said those words to Peter. Speaking of the Gentiles, God has abandoned that old tradition of unclean Gentiles in favor of transformation. The Gentiles are no longer impure or unworthy. Paul knew this. The Gentile believers all around Asia Minor knew this. The the Christian Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were beginning to learn this. They weren't quite there yet. But the rest of the city of Jerusalem, they were nowhere near this. They were nowhere near understanding this truth. And for the perceived sin of allowing a Gentile into the temple, Paul was to be beaten to death on the spot. Note two things. First of all, there is no proof Paul did this. In fact, Paul almost certainly did not do this. Paul was very respectful of Jewish law when he was around Jerusalem. He would never have done this. Second of all, if he had done it, who's the person who should die for that offense? Not Paul. Trophimus. They don't care about Trophimus. They don't even know Trophimus's name. They just know he's a Gentile. This, they, this is an attack against Paul that they just wanted an excuse. Very much like Jesus. It's a long-standing grievance against Paul alone. So they seize him. They drag him down the temple stairs, raining down blows and insults on him, finally ready to take his life. And do you know what the saddest part of that whole first portion we've read is to me? To me, the saddest part isn't the injustice against Paul. Like, that's terrible. Injustice anywhere is an offense to the character and nature of God. It's awful. But as we'll see, Paul turns that injustice into an opportunity for evangelism. So good comes out of it. So that's not the saddest thing. Nor is it the parallelism between Paul and his master Jesus, who had himself endured wraths of away with him, as Paul does here in this passage. In fact, The tragic parallel between Jesus and Paul only emphasizes the promises of Jesus. Promises that when we share his name, we share his suffering and his persecution, but we also share his glory. So I'm sure, absolutely, Paul would count himself fortunate for enduring the same punishment in the same place with the same hateful words as his master Jesus had endured. I'm sure to Paul, that's not a sad thing. That's an honor and a privilege. 
that they're shouting at him in Jerusalem the same things they shouted at Jesus. So that, to me, isn't the saddest thing. I think that the saddest little detail in this passage is tucked away at the end of verse 30, where it says, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. So at this point, Dave asked, how many years was it after this happened to Jesus did it happen to Paul? About 20, they think. Jesus, about AD 30, 33. Paul became a Christian not long after. They think this is about 20 years after that. So this is around 80, I don't know, 56, 57. It's about 15 years, <clears throat> excuse me, before the fall of Jerusalem, which I'll mention here in a second. Good question, Dave. I think the saddest little detail is, and immediately the gates were shut. Both the commentaries that I read made the same point about this. It seems really insignificant to us. They felt that this was the author, Luke, it was the author's way of highlighting the fullness of God's transformation. No longer is this fancy building in Jerusalem the home of God's presence. The gates weren't just shutting out Paul. They were shutting out God's will being carried out through Paul. And so God would reject that place, not because of any problem with the place, because of problems with the people who worship that place instead of the God who's doing new transformative things. So God would reject that place, and within a couple decades, about 15 years, as, as Dave asked, it would be brought to absolute ruin as predicted by Jesus in Luke 21. If the temple were still the sacred place of, of God's holy presence on earth, then it would have lasted for, you, you'd think, longer than a decade and a half. But the sadness of this passage is found in the fact that it marks the point where the old traditional way based around the temple is done away with for good. God has turned his back on the temple, as Stephen had predicted way back in chapter 7 and 8. And now it's happening. The gates are shut. However, it also marks the point where a new transformative way is ushered in. Something new is happening. The Holy Spirit who once dealt, dwelt in that temple hasn't been cut off from Paul. That it doesn't. When the gates shut, it's not keeping the Holy Spirit away from Paul. Paul is alive with the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul has been instrumental in bringing the Holy Spirit to life in anyone who will accept him, including those dastardly Gentiles. So yes, including Gentiles who had been traditionally banned from the Spirit's presence in the temple, they are now filled with the Holy Spirit. The transformation is this. Now the Gentiles, or Jews for that matter, anyone, they are the presence of the Holy Spirit, not some temple, some building somewhere. It's, it's us, it's you, so long as we accept his invitation and partner with him. The gates of the temple have been shut, but a billion new gates have been opened up in the souls of every person who humbly seeks to know the transforming love of their creator. And that's us. So it's sad. It means the end of something. The gates are shut. But it's beautiful because it means the some, beginning of something even better. Back to the story. The Romans, ironically, show up as saviors. They're the ones who rescue Paul before he's beaten fully to death. And since they can't get a straight story through the ugly clamor of the crowd, they drag him back to the fortress to get some answers. Even chained up to two separate soldiers, one on either side, people are still mobbing him and beating him. Um, they're especially enraged now because the Romans have showed up and denied them their ability to murder Paul, which they were really looking forward to. Nuts. Have to do it another time. So they're really enraged now. But finally... Paul reaches the relative safety of the fortress, and let's find out what happens next, verses 37 to 40. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? 
the commander replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? By the way, you want to hear the story of the Egyptian? That's a real story. Extra biblical sources confirm it. It's a pretty cool story. Ask me after service, I'll tell you. It involves daggers and assassinations, and uh, it's really great. Anyway, verse 39. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, and we'll read his speech in a minute. So, yeah, Paul is not the Egyptian assassin. It's a great story. Somebody should make a movie about this story. I really want to tell you the story, but we're pressed for time. So, anyways, here's where Paul's multilingual abilities come in handy. First with the Roman commander, and then with the unruly mob calling for his head. In speaking perfect Greek, the commanding officer's taken aback. He thought he was just some yokel, some backwoods assassin from Nowheresville. But he has made it clear that he's he's someone educated, gentlemanly, someone well-heeled, because he actually quotes the poet Euripides when he mentions he's a city of no or a citizen of no mean city. So when this Roman officer hears him quoting a Roman poet or a Greek poet, he says, Whoa, who is this guy? Maybe I should take him seriously. Having had his expectations shattered, the commander allows Paul to address the spiteful crowd below, and he addresses them in their language, Aramaic, which was the language of the people of the time. Um, and that gets their attention. He's speaking to them on their terms. And uh, once he raises his hands like this, which Paul or Luke mentioned several times in Acts, whenever Paul does this, the crowd immediately goes silent wherever he is, which is so cool. I do not have that power. I wish I had in kindergarten to just stand up and go like this, and they all silent. That doesn't happen. Um, but all he does is motion, they're silent, and then when he speaks in their language, they're absolutely silent to hear what he has to say. And, and what he has to say is beautiful and informative to us. Much of this is familiar. It's Paul recounting his conversion. But we'll read this, and then I have something out of it. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. We've met Gamaliel. He's shown up in the story of Acts, and, and Paul trained under him. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. So that's Christians. He persecuted them to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. And he mentions it was around noon, noon the brightest time of the day, and still this light was so bright it it blocked out the noonday sun. That's how bright it was. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. 
and at that very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Until he said what? Gentiles. That's right. The crowd listened to Paul until he said Gentiles. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. And we'll stop there. Now, as I mentioned, most of this story is familiar to us. It's very famous, the story of Paul's conversion. Um, And we studied it just months ago, so I won't go into too much detail. But I want us to see how he tailors this message to his very specific audience. Despite his status as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul always wanted to preach the gospel to his brothers and fathers as he begins his speech here, the Jews. He's sent to the Gentiles, but his heart beats for the Jewish people, his people. He had always yearned to address a crowd of Jews. I'm glad that Taylor Hall won the Hart Trophy as MVP. I, I really like him. I respect him. I think he's a great hockey player. I would have been so much more happy had he won that trophy with my people the Euler fans of Edmonton. That that trophy would have been so much better, so much better for me if he had won it with his people. And that's what Paul's feeling. He's glad the Gentiles know the gospel and are responding. He wants his people to know it and respond to it too. Since he was first converted, he's attempted to win over his brothers and fathers to limited success. And now he has an entire city of Jews in the Jewish city listening intently to what he has to say. So his time, his moment, has come. As far as we know, by the way, after this, Paul would never be in Jerusalem again. So this may literally have been his one time to do this. And what he has to say is expertly said. First, he outlines his credentials as a good Jewish boy. Hey, I trained under Gamaliel. He's a big-time Jew, so I'm a big-time Jew. Many of the people of power he ran around with as a young Pharisee are still kicking around Jerusalem. They're still in power. Those same people, in fact, are the ones who issued the order for him to go to Damascus and hunt and persecute Christians. Those same people, are, many of them, are still in and around Jerusalem, still in positions of power. Those same pe- They may have even been in the crowd. Paul may have been able to look them in the eye and say, you sent me there to Damascus. But here's what happened in Damascus. All of that changed in a blinding noontime flash of light. This is the second of three tellings of Paul's conversion experience in the book of Acts, and each one adds a few details and a little color to the story. In Paul's telling here, chapter 22, Ananias' righteousness is highlighted. We don't know a lot about Ananias, and the, the, the Jews who are listening to Paul's speech would have known nothing about Ananias, but it's no ordinary dude who commissions Paul to Jesus' service. It's Jesus himself, and then an upstanding, well-respected Jewish man named Ananias. This is important to the Jewish crowd. It's not some Joe Schmo, some, some Gentile from Nowheresville. It's an important guy. 
And he reports that Ananias' words with very Jewish terms, God of our fathers. Jews like that phrase, because that's their fathers. Um, righteous one, the one who is coming, who will save them. They like that. As he had done with the Gentiles on Mars Hill, Paul always customizes his witness in order for it to have the maximum effect on his audience. That's an important lesson for us, I think. God's work in us reveals truth and transformation for literally anyone we cross paths with. There's something in our story that can connect with anyone you meet. Um, I think we tend to think, I have one story that can connect with one type of person. I think that way. That's not the truth. Paul connects with anyone he meets. Our life is a testimony in dozens of ways to hundreds of people. Part of Paul's testimony is an interaction that he had with Jesus in the temple. He had asked Jesus to keep him in Jerusalem where he felt his unique history would give him a unique standing among his brothers, the Jews. Hey, Jesus, I'm a good Jew. I think that I can witness to these other good Jews. Don't you think? Jesus says, no, get out of here. Get as far away from here as possible. In verse 18, Jesus says, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Jesus had said that back in chapter 9. Well, we don't have the interaction, but Paul in the temple was back in Acts 9. And now 13 chapters later, it's still true. They still will not accept Paul's testimony. The people, God's people, are still so wrapped up in their traditional perception of how and where and in whom God does his work that they're willing to murder the one who is, more than anyone, speaking God's will and doing God's new transformative work. They're so blind, so blinded by their obsession with their traditional understanding of how God works, they don't see that this is how God works now, in Paul, with Gentile people. It's very sad. As soon as Paul mentions God's plan for the Gentiles, how do the people of Jerusalem react? Frustration and horror. They lose their minds. They're willing to hear, they're willing to hear Paul talk about Jesus. They're willing to hear Paul talk about Stephen, who they had also murdered. They're not willing to hear about going to the Gentiles. They, they, they lose their mind when they hear that. And these people, they know their calling. This is Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Both make it clear that Israel's purpose is to be a light to who? The Gentiles. The nations, this is, this is the scripture that they believe in, they value, they, many of those men in that crowd have had memorized since they were 12. They know this. They are to be a light to the Gentiles. But as soon as Paul says that's what he's doing, they lose their mind completely. They're throwing dirt in the air. They're tearing their clothes. All signs of response to blasphemy. Blasphemy. They know this and they still think it's blasphemy. That is a significant part of their identity. They are a beckoning light of salvation for the nations around them, the Gentiles. But as soon as Paul highlights this sacred responsibility, which, by the way, they all share, the call to take this light to the Gentiles, as soon as he mentions that, they all scream to rid the earth of him, that he's not fit to live. As it says in John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Is there a better display of that? Maybe, well, Jesus. But is there a better display of that in Scripture than this right here? But why? Why the rage? How could they miss the obvious implications of being a light to the nations? How could they hate the name of the one who brought that light to humanity, Jesus? How could they pummel to death the one who says he's simply doing what they should all be doing? How do they get so far away from the will of the God that they're there to worship in the temple? Well, I've been suggesting all sermon long that tradition is a bad thing. It's not. Tradition is not a bad thing. 
Tradition is part of the scaffolding that gives structure to the experience of following Jesus. We sing and take communion and pray together every week in this building, every Sunday, because Scripture prescribes it, but also because of tradition. It's what we always have done. We lean on tradition to help guide us to righteousness, to help make sense of a God who none of us can make sense of, to help us understand the totally ununderstandable God. Tradition and ritual are born from the same place. Humans wanting a framework for understanding the God that we cannot begin to understand. Tradition helps us to do that. But the problem with tradition is that humans love tradition. They love it. We get locked into tradition. Tradition feels safe and comfortable, and we like safe and comfortable, especially once we are in with tradition. You don't believe me? Remember when you and your spouse were first dating and first married, and you had to figure out how to do Christmas together? And you got upset because your wife's family refused to open any presents until the morning of the 25th when you were raised that you were allowed to open one gift the night before and she flatly rejects that idea that you grew up, that this is sacred tradition in your family? You remember that? I remember that. It's all tradition. Happy tradition, opening presents on Christmas Day tradition. And still, there's so much resentment because of it. Well, take that, and that's just one tiny little tradition in a day of the year that's filled with all kinds of tiny traditions. Take that, and in the case of Gentiles in the temple, multiply it by a billion, and sprinkle in your own sacred identity as the children of Most High God, that that's the thing you're defending. Wrap that all up together, and you'll see why they're defending this tradition so fiercely. You'll see how tradition has become less a scaffolding to understand their relationship with God and more of a prison, keeping them away from their relationship with God. Um, one of the, the authors of one of the commentaries I always read, his name is Ajith Fernando. He has this great quote. A theologically orthodox, pe- by the way, orthodox, that's not just like you hear Greek orthodox, Russian orthodox. That word orthodox just means traditional right thinking. That's all it means. A theologically orthodox people can become so comfortable in their orthodoxy that they become hardened to change. We tend to think that we've got it all figured out, but newsflash, we don't. And more than we just don't, we tend to point at everybody else and say, well, I've got it way more figured out than those people. And that may be true from time to time, but more often than not, it's not. More often than not, it's not true. God's will is not locked into our ideas of what is traditionally acceptable. If it were, if God only worked in the ways that we thought he should work, Jesus never would have come as a slave. He would have come as a warrior. If he only acted in the way we expected, he would have never called fishermen and tax collectors and sinners like you and I to be his followers. He would never have taken the light of the salvation to the Gentiles at all, which means we're hooped. Because we're a bunch of Gentiles. He would never have had Martin Luther take seriously the sole authority of Scripture over human tradition. The, the Reformation, that all happened because some people refused to just blindly obey tradition. And our whole Protestant tradition comes out of that. He never would have led the Church of Christ movement, which is our heritage, to recognize that squabbling over the presence of drums or kitchens in our buildings aren't the right hills to die on. We think we got it pretty good, Church of Christ. We value scripture, but we've had a lot of problems in our tradition because we fight over stupid, stupid things. 
God only ever acted in the way we expect him to act, we wouldn't be sitting here today knowing, worshiping, being blessed to be in the presence of our God. We simply wouldn't. That blessing would belong to someone else. So much of our identity, our traditional identity of who we are as followers of Jesus, can be traced back to people and movements who refused to believe God was tied down to tradition. Our authority is the Holy Spirit, alive and active in new and transformative ways. Our authority is not, well, that's how we've always done it. If we do anything as a church because, well, that's how we've always done it, we need to rethink it. Because that's not how God works. You know how they had always done it in Paul's day? Here's how they had always done it in Paul's day. Gentiles like us were forbidden to be in the presence of God and were beaten to death in the streets if we tried. That's their tradition. Sure, the words of God in Scripture are very old, and they're very unchanging, and they're very traditional in a sense. But that was true of the Old Testament. Those traditions were what enlivened the Jewish people in Jerusalem who are fighting against Paul, and many of those people stumbled under its traditions as well. Just because it's old and it's words that we know doesn't mean God is locked in in a certain way to them. There are so many modern applications to this principle that it's frankly ridiculous. It's traditional for the Church of the West ever since the first pilgrims came over and conquered this new land, it has been traditional for the Church of the West to hold power over people and demand authority and wield that authority to force people to think like them. Where in Scripture do we see that ever happening in the New Testament? Never. But that's our tradition. We are traditionally in power in the West. It has become traditional for Christians to support the systematic oppression marginalization, judgment, and persecution of, here's a partial list over the centuries, women, gay people, addicts, immigrants, criminals, environmentalists, Muslims, or any other group of people who the powerful Church of the West has declared war on uh, as outsiders. Whatever you want to add to that list, go ahead and add to the list because there's a long list. If you heard any group on that list and immediately thought, well, they deserve what they get as outsiders, they deserve to be that, then you are trapped in the lie of worshiping tradition. Those are traditional views on real people with real hearts and souls who really, really, really need Jesus, just like you and I. None of those groups of people are further away from the good news of Jesus Christ than I am, but the church has oppressed those people traditionally. So, editor's note, just listening to it back now, I somehow forgot to include First Nations people, which is probably the most obvious one in our day and age today, living in Canada. I don't see, in the words of Jesus, any reason to exclude any of those people or any other type of people from the light of his transformational love. Paul was beaten almost to death at the foot of God's former dwelling place, the temple, because traditionalists worship tradition instead of the God who works tirelessly beyond tradition to show his endless love to all humanity. So, don't weep for Paul, who was beaten unjustly for loving Gentiles. Weep for the Jerusalemites who rejected that light. And weep for those of us who cling to traditions that our God has long outgrown. Some traditional views must die so that God's love can be demonstrated and hearts can be transformed. Time out. I'm not commenting on the morality of those outsiders. Clearly, it's better to not be a drug addict than to be a drug addict. I'm, I'm not saying we need to, anyone can just come in and be the pastor and lead the church and say they have exclusive rights to, to truth. 
I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they are perfect and must be treated as such. The Gentiles in Paul's day, they were up to some pretty vile and impure stuff. There's reason why the Jewish people separated themselves from a lot of what they did. However, you know what's even more vile and impure? And I'm going to close with this. The most vile and impure thing is a Christian's unwillingness to show grace and love to an outsider because tradition dictates that they don't deserve it. That's the most vile and upsetting and disgusting thing. Not being an outsider, being refused the light of Jesus as an outsider by somebody who is supposed to be an insider. Always, always err on the side of love because that's always, always where Jesus went. Always erred on the side of love. The Holy Spirit will work in those people transformatively. But first they have to know the Holy Spirit. And if we deny them, because traditionally those are people we don't want anything to do with, then we are missing our calling. We're just as bad as the Jerusalemites beating Paul to death at the foot of the temple. We're just as bad. I believe that. And uh, I try to live in a way that demonstrates that. But I make mistakes too. And I'm not perfect. And there's all kinds of people that I don't want anything to do with because their life is messy to me. Or it might look bad on me to associate with that. That has to die. That's one of those old traditions that needs to die so the transformative love of God can shine. Does that make sense? You guys are good at this. And in a lot of ways, I'm preaching to the choir. There is nobody who would be unwelcome to walk through those doors. And I know that, and I believe that about you, and I value that about you. But that's not true of a lot of churches in and around our area, in and in the West. It's just not always true. And we as Christians are the ones responsible to make it true. Let's pray. God, we hear of Paul's unjust treatment, and we see that persecution, and we, we hate to hear that from a brother or sister to endure suffering for your name. But more than that, Father, help us to be people who refuse to be oppressors to others for your name. Father, I thank you for Paul's example of being willing to suffer for what is right, for taking your love to people who don't know you. I pray that we would be people known for that as well. We pray in your, Jesus, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Don't hear me telling you how to vote, please. You remember that? I remember that. And still there's so much resentment because of it.